0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains names of people who have died. We extend a disclaimer to all listeners that this episode contains detailed accounts of violence and trauma and may be disturbing for some. Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things Down Under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down the Tasmanian Genocide, what happened, why people don't know about it, and how we can work towards reconciliation. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Rugusa.
1: And I'm Vanessa DiGrazia. And welcome back to another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging Which is very, very important for today's episode, don't you think?
0: Yes, very important because today's episode is going to be quite a serious one. This issue deserves our reverence and this has overall been a rough thing to delve into. There are a few of our episodes that have gotten to the core of this issue, namely um, our slavery one and also the one we posted on Invasion Day about the invasion of Australia,
1: but also ties in with the treatment of asylum seekers too. Yeah, this app can be seen as a continuation of the Invading Australia episode by telling you one part of what occurred after the British invasion. And I only learned about this
0: topic in the second year of my university degree, so I was only ever coming across this as a 20-year-old, never taught taught it before, never been exposed to it, Um, and it was in a subject called History of Violence, which tells you a lot about the subject.
1: Yeah, and I first heard about it from you. There you go. So, definitely not common knowledge. Mm. Um, And I want to begin this episode with a conversation about the complexities of talking about and teaching Indigenous history. So, this episode was one of the very first topics that we wanted to talk about when we first created this podcast many moons ago. Mm. Um, But for many reasons that we'll delve into, we had a few issues to work through before we made it.
0: Yeah, one being that neither of us identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So in a lot of senses, we felt like this wasn't our topic to talk about, nor could we speak on behalf of people's experiences. Um, we searched and we reached out to a lot of scholars and experts and all of these sorts of people who were connected to the topic um, because we really wanted to centre Black voices, but we found that these scholars themselves were all either non-Indigenous and the small people of the small pool of people who we actually wanted their input and valued their opinions on this topic were the sorts of senior people that wouldn't and shouldn't expend time and energy on our little podcast. At the end of the day, um, it's not their responsibility to educate non-Indigenous people.
1: Yeah, for sure. And we debated between the two of us whether to do the episode at all. And six months later, we've come to the conclusion that we would for the simple yet dearly important reason that this I mean, I don't even know what word to use. I want to say black mark, but um, this absolutely vile time in our history, it's not really known about. So we put up an Instagram story asking um, if people had heard of the Tasmanian genocide and a big majority said that they hadn't, which really showed that we should make this episode.
0: Yeah, and for those who responded who live in Victoria, a few people said that the only subject they learnt about it in was in a VCE subject called Australian History, which is actually one of the subjects that has the lowest enrolments across all of VCE, so it's not common knowledge whatsoever. Um, So on that basis, we decided to do it, and that's when we soon ran into our next issue, Which is one of the complexities of talking about and teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history is that it's very difficult to find those primary resources from the time of the event that come from the groups in question. So in this case, it was the Palawa people um, in Tasmania. And this is due to a number of reasons. Firstly, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures generally practice oral traditions, which means they verbally pass down knowledge through stories um, and fables and things like that. And, you know, also the fact that there are many unflattering accounts of the British that might have had more a more realistic presentation of the events that were generally not kept or very well taken care of. And... Um, that means that we can't access a lot of these events and accounts in written form. Um, also, in many cases, Aboriginal and Islanders were killed off in, in mass and there were not many people left to record these histories. So it works against them in a few ways. And in the words of Palawa woman Heather Sculthorpe, the attempted extermination of our people, in this case she's talking about the Palawa people, was so almost complete that few of those stories have been handed down.
1: Yeah, a very powerful quote. Um, This means that we're often left with a bunch of records of these events that were created by coloniser soldiers, politicians, and general rich white guys who spent their time fulfilling their interests in photography and biological genocide. And (laughs) I I don't even mean that as a joke. That's a genuine um, pattern that I found in these resources. Um, this doesn't mean that the true events of history can't be uncovered, but it definitely means it takes some real in depth research and critical analysis um, of all the accounts that are available. Um, to give another quote here, this one's from a lady, Auntie Margaret, who's a Wurundjeri woman of the Kulin Nation, the nation in which Tanya and I are recording this pod. Um, she says that sometimes we have to rely on colonizer writings. It's just the way it is, it's the resources that are there, and we might as well make use of them for a better purpose. Mm. That being said, we've made an effort to centre black voices and research in this episode. I mean, I've never spent so many hours writing an episode. I really, really wanted to get it right. And that's why it's also a pretty long one. Um, As usual, all the sources will be in the show notes. So we encourage you to go have a look at those when you finish listening.
0: And also in research for this app, we accessed a lot of physical resources at the State Library of Victoria. So if you are wanting to get in touch with those, let us know and we can let you know what we use to help us write this episode. Um, So we say all this because we want to encourage you all to contemplate how the history of Australia that we know has been purposely constructed and why it's been constructed that way. We want you to consider the sheer whiteness of the way we've been raised to understand our
1: country and how it can perpetuate certain ideas about race. Okay, so what happened in Tasmania?
0: So, basic geography. Tasmania has been separated from mainland Australia for around 10,000 years And people had been living in Tasmania for 30,000 years before that. A long time. Yeah, for a long time. They were actually the most southern population in the world. So people in Tasmania were there before anyone ever inhabited Chile, Argentina, or South Africa, which is right at the bottom of our
1: globe. Yeah, so it's a very, very old culture. And there were at least four different nations on the land that we call Tasmania, and dozens and dozens of clans. They did consider themselves to all be part of one nation, the Palawa Nation, and they were a predominantly nomadic people. They followed food across the different seasons, shellfish, seabirds, wallaby, heaps of different veggies. And seeing as they were separated from the mainland for over 10,000 years, which, mind you, to quantify 10,000 years, that's around the same time humans first began to grow wheat. Like and farm, a.k.a. a really, really, really long time ago. Um, So they were kind of different from Aboriginal cultures on the Australian mainland in language and practices and things like that. Yeah, so they were
0: very unique in the ways in which they lived because they were separated from the rest of mainland Australia. But British colonisers first came to Tasmania, or what they called um, Van Diemen's Land, in September 1803. So this was around 20 years after British settlers First came to Botany Bay, which we covered in our invading Australia episode. And at this point in 1803, the Palawa population is estimated to be up to 15,000 people, but accounts do vary, of course, because the sources are very widespread. But by 1830, all Aboriginal hunting grounds had been occupied by the British, and there were only around 400 Palawa left. And in 1847, which was 44 years after the British first landed on Tassie soil, that number shrunk to 40 or so Palawa people. And they were gathered up and sent to concentration camps to live out the rest of their days, um, which they did until the last Palawa person dies in 1876, which was a woman called Traganini. So I note there's actually a a memorial of Traganini that was defaced with a drawing of Captain Cook last month. Last month. Which is, I mean, convenient timing from us, but also just shows that the issue is recurring and still ongoing. Um, It's disgusting and we'll include a link in our show notes to the article about the defacement. But we have to ask ourselves, how did the population of Palo people in Tasmania go from – 15,000 people to only around 40 people in less than 50 years.
1: Yeah, a really big jump. Um, So the way it happened was that conflict began almost immediately after invasion. So the Palawa were understandably opposed to the British attempting to expand on their land. Not only did they bring diseases that killed off heaps of their people, but nearly one million sheep had been moved onto prime hunting land, which destroyed food sources for native animals, interrupted waterways, and overall just completely destroyed existing hunting and living practices. So, by 1818, there were already less than 2,000 Palawa, so those numbers declined really, really quickly. This big portion of the population was wiped out by the rapid change in living conditions caused by the British using the land.
0: And, of course, from this tensions grew, so the Palawa kept fighting against British expansion, and the colonisers initially attempted to try the Palawa as criminals in court, but soon realised that this wasn't going to work, And, of course, the Palawa weren't giving up because the stakes were too high and their entire livelihoods um, were on the line. So, in 1824, this is regarded as the year when the situation transitioned
1: from just a small conflict to a full-scale war, which is now called the Black War. And a fresh colonel was sent in from Britain to lead this. He quickly passed laws that allowed British soldiers to raid Palawa camps and detain any Aboriginal person that they found. Um, Soldiers were recruited and weapons were stockpiled. They actually encouraged ex-soldiers to come settle in Tasmania by rewarding them with guns and ammunition. By 1828, a martial law had been declared in some parts of the island and there was a five pound bounty to bring in an Aboriginal adult. Two pounds for a child, dead or alive, which is probably the most messed up fact I saw in this yeah. whole thing.
0: And by martial law, we mean that the government or the the people in power have the choice to come out and fire upon the population. So um, these British soldiers were coming out and using force against the Indigenous populations. And the media of the day reported the Palawa as the aggressors attempting to stop the progress of Of this new great British colony in Tasmania, which, as the narrative um, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history seems to go, they were painted as, you know, the barbarian savages that wanted to kill the whites and, you know, the British soldiers were representing progress
1: and expansion and the modern world. It's, It's the same tale. Yeah, sounds familiar. In, 19- in 1830, sorry, they began a battlefront called the Black Line, in which they arranged parties of soldiers in a horizontal line across the whole island, with the intention of forcing Palawa armies southwards, so if you're picturing Tasmania, a line across it, they're trying to move them down, down the island, eventually being able to round them up and send them to the small islands off the south coast. So the army that they used for this was huge. Around 10% of the European population on Tasmania was used for this battle. And it cost half the colony's revenue for the entire year. So clearly they were very dedicated to this cause.
0: Yeah, so they're essentially trying to run them off the island by like pushing them down until they reach the coast. And whether this worked the way it was supposed to is highly debated. Some accounts claim that this is the reason why the population the population quickly decimated, whilst others say the Palawa largely slipped past the line. Um, but whatever happened, a small number of First Nations people did remain on the island. These little groups were really good at launching sneaky attacks that were still killing British families and damaging property. Um, They were so small, the British armies could never find them. So, the colony employed a new strategy. So, with Palawa assistance to help them, they sent diplomats diplomats to these little settlements um, who
1: were tasked with convincing the Palawa people to move south. Essentially, genocide diplomacy. And it worked. Because... If you think about it, there was nothing left for the Palawa people on traditional lands anymore. They had no land to build a community on, and they were sick of being hunted. They were living on the run all of the time, so they took up the offer. It's all of these people we're talking about that formed the approximate 40 Palawa people that were left living on those small islands in the Bass Strait in the 1840s. And in 1847, the government decided to round them up and send them to concentration camps in order to make them easier to manage. And they had to deal with disease, malnourishment, and obviously deep emotional trauma. They'd effectively been killed and driven out, and the colonists had won the Black War.
0: And referring back to our little spiel on colonised history, this account is derived by British sources and endorsed by the existing Palawan nation. So... Clearly for already mentioned reasons, we do not have records of how this conflict played out on the Palawa side. We don't have their accounts of their battle strategies, their resources and policies, even though these things would almost certainly have played a huge role in the events. Yeah,
1: and we just wanted to accentuate that because often Australian history paints Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as just, you know savages running around doing random battles whereas they would have had specific strategies just the same as the british yeah and it was long believed that there were no palawa people left at all and as we said earlier that truganini was in fact the last but this has since been discovered as untrue which is something i learned writing this episode Mm -hmm. so out of the 40 or so people that were herded into those concentration camps a dozen of the women escaped so all women no men Um, 10 were captured by British sealers and they created a community on the islands off the northern tip of Tasmania and two married European men on the mainland. So these 12 women are from whom the entire Palawa population of this day derives from.
0: Wow, and I think it's really important to include those stories of resistance and how they essentially came to regenerate. I think that's really important to note that they didn't just give up in the fight. Okay, so why do we call what happened in Tasmania a
1: genocide rather than a war? So even in terms of it being a war, these events fall into a very carefully constructed story about the conflicts that happened in Australia's colonisation. So until recently, when the term frontier wars, which describes the conflicts occurring since invasion up until around the 1930s, um, up until this... Up till this term became more popular, these conflicts were regarded as little skirmishes. So, colonisation was presented as a mostly peaceful affair, and the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander populations definitely weren't credited with being capable of waging actual war. Mm. When trouble was admitted to, like I said earlier, they were framed as simply killing in random barbaric ways.
0: And this is completely untrue because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had millennia of combat experience behind them. As with any other civilization in history, wars between nations were common and they also had their own established routines and strategies. So in the Black War, the Palawa were particularly talented in guerrilla warfare. So just because they didn't have the European guns doesn't mean that they weren't capable of organizing armies and battle strategies.
1: And now back to your question, we'll take a second to define genocide. So genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. So it differs from war when you're trying to gain land or resources and death is just a consequence. Genocide is purposefully trying to kill off a group of of people. So the most well-known genocide that most of our listeners i would hope have heard of um was during world war ii when hitler tried to decimate the jewish population and six million people died and
0: i think on that point it's really important to note that genocide is not just the act of killing but any policy um or strategy in place to purposely disadvantage that ethnic group so As part of that definition of genocide there's also the forced removal of children which we know as the stolen generations in Australia. So some may argue that genocide in Australia is continued and it it occurred throughout history in different forms so it's important to recognize that genocide is multifaceted and can be enacted in a lot of different ways. Um, That's why some people might also argue that what happened during the Holocaust for example which is probably one of the most predominant examples can be considered genocide but what happened in australia can't because it wasn't the same genocide is very different and like i said enacted in different ways um but traditionally histories have maintained that the tasmanian aboriginal population disappeared due to failed policies war and disease basically they said that the government didn't mean to exterminate them um, but they claimed the war was fought and afterwards the disease spread which killed the populations off And so this means it's been framed as almost accidental that the entire population was wiped out um, and just a consequence of the Palawa
1: being defeated in the war and defenceless to European diseases. Yeah, and history disagrees. So the main sources that support the perspective that genocide did occur in Tasmania are firstly the oral stories of the living Palawa nation, which are represented through an organisation called the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre and number 2 an account of the events written by British author James Bonwick in 1870 so if we're looking at the facts of how the war played out the fact that soldiers that were allowed the fact that soldiers were allowed to indiscriminately kill Palawa people including children regardless if they were involved in the conflict or not as well as the fact as they were purposely pushed to the south and then forced to live under unsustainable conditions even though they had a very small population left should ring some alarm bells.
0: And like I said before, genocide also included in the definition includes that notion of forced removal. So using that black line to push them down is forcibly removing them off the land. Um, If we're wanting to talk about the specific evidence, the Bonwick book clearly recounts a meeting in Hobart in the late 1830s where a senior British official discussed his views on the Aboriginal problem, quote, saying that if the colony couldn't protect themselves from Aboriginal attack without extermination, then they should boldly and broadly exterminate. So basically justifying what they were trying to do with the Indigenous populations. And we can consider this book as more reliable than some other British sources, as Bonwick was not part of any of Australia's governments. It differs from a war because it is the events past the war – sending them to essentially dying convict camps that marks it as genocide.
1: Yeah, it's very clear the historical sources support it and the ancestral families support it, but Australia is so scared to use the word genocide. When the events of the stolen generations were referred to as genocide in the 1997 Bringing Them Home report, fairly mm. referred to as genocide, yeah. there was massive backlash and When you think of Kevin Rudd's sorry speech, um, you would be able to recall that he definitely didn't use the word genocide either. No, definitely not.
0: And genocide as a term was coined in 1944, for obvious reasons, right after World War II. And the author who created it actually cited what happened in Tasmania as a case study. So now the idea that what happened in Tasmania was genocide has only become mainstream in Australia maybe in the last five to ten years. And this is only really among academics. It's still only taught in a very small number of schools. And as we mentioned earlier, the definite majority of people don't even know what happened, let alone aren't
1: aware what happened was a genocide. So it's crazy that a European historian from the 1940s seems to know it better than Australia does. Yeah. And we just refuse to recognise the dark truth of this land's history. And it goes to show that we still have so, so long to go in terms of reconciliation. I mean, the place that one of the biggest battles in the Black War occurred is literally still called Suicide Bay to this day. Um, That's grim. It's it's insanely grim. And the insensitivity and inability to be accountable for our colonial past is bordering insanity. Mm. Um, however, we do have the deepest hope that we're moving forward. And hopefully this episode can play a very small but important part in that. Um, I would say that this is definitely going to be a conversation that will continuously pop up in years to come as more and more people find out about these events and wonder why they've never heard of it before and wonder why no one seems to care. Yeah, and referring back to our
0: Invading Australia ep, which is very closely linked to this episode, we discussed in large um, what was called the History Wars, in which there's always been this debate um, about how we discuss the history of Australia whether we have that black armband approach and we like to highlight the violence that happened or whether we should be honoring you know the noble foundings of our country so it definitely plays into that and I think now as we become more socially conscious and aware of what's happening it will creep into conversations more often Right and now it's time for our recommendations
1: if our listeners are wanting to find out more. So Vanessa, what have you got for us today? So mine's an interactive map from The Guardian. And it gives details of the Frontier Wars. So it has locations, casualties, which groups did what, all set out on this map that you can click on different locations. And it's a really good starting point for anyone wanting to learn more about the wars that stole the Australia we know. Um, this is actually Tanya's recommendation a few episodes ago, but we're bringing it back because it's a great resource.
0: Yeah, and what's really important on this map is you can see where the British, were the aggressors Um In some instances, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were aggressors. um, But also, it will tell you tales of Aboriginal resistance, so where they actually fought back. um, Because like I said, that's important to note as well. Mine is a website with a few primary sources from the Tasmanian genocide. By primary sources, we mean sources from the time of the event. And I chose this one because I saw a painting called Governor Arthur's Proclamation to the Aborigines, Um, who was one of the leading British soldiers at the time. And this is meant to depict the conflict that was happening in Tasmania. And it was very, very interesting to see that this painting was set out as the first thing happening was that an Indigenous man killed a British soldier first. Then in revenge, another British soldier retaliates and kills this Indigenous man. But then that British soldier is executed by his own army for the murder so as if they were punishing the British soldier for murdering the um, indigenous man and I think this once again we need our critical analysis hats on here to realize that this is coming from a British perspective and they're probably wanting to paint the British as peaceful and um, remorseful for what they did so guess question to ask there is true or not true and that's it from us today thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode we've had a few people tell us that they really like our history episodes and going in depth with this stuff so if you do enjoy this episode let us know and we'll keep producing them for you
1: yeah, and we just wanted to add, if you do listen to our episodes regularly, it would really mean a lot to us if you followed us on Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you're using, and leave a review. This really helps us bump us up on the algorithm, etc. Um, and in the meantime, uh, follow us for more short, sweet, and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Pod. All the info, all the sources we've talked about today are in the show notes for you to check out, which we extra recommend today. Yeah, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye, Bye everyone.